This podcast is offered by Hakkabai Zen Center on the web at hakkabai.org. Our programs are made possible by the generosity of people like you. End of the third day for most of us. First day for some of us. Often, uh, this is the time when you can't imagine you could get up in the morning and do this again. Uh, and uh, not to create expectations, but frequently what happens is you wake up and it's a new day. It's a different sun and everything's changed. Mm. Pain doesn't go away, but uh, it just becomes information, like uh, the birds singing or the bells ringing when the wind blows, which makes it a lot easier to sit when it becomes information instead of a threat to your very existence. So, tonight's subject is discipline, and in our agreed-upon format, uh, we're alternating who starts and who goes second, so it's Hakuzan's turn tonight to begin this discussion. When I first got Senji's proposal for Dharma Talk subjects, going down through the master discipline. Hmm. What does he mean by discipline? And discipline for what? Is it in reference to what he was talking about? Tired tonight and the discipline to get up in the morning when everything aches and it's five o'clock and you haven't slept so well? Is it that kind of discipline? And what causes us to get up? There's a, in my view, there's, It it goes fundamental to why do we practice? Discipline is fundamental to that. What's the the motivation that brings us here to actually practice? And and of course, we can say, yes, it's suffering, all of it's suffering. But I also like to offer for your consideration that there's something else going on. And I call it an urging, a nudging, a kind of a, a feeling in the back of the mind that you know, maybe you have all the material comforts and everything's fine, relationships are good, but there's something not quite right. There's something just a little bit off and it kind of gnaws at you and it just kind of, you know, that itch that will not go away. And I think that's, for some people that answer that call, that take up that kind of discipline, heads in a different direction. And I want to read something to you. Thomas Burton I've been referring to several times. His last lecture on it was on prayer in uh, Darjeeling uh, in the 60s. He, this was shortly after he delivered this. He, of course, as some of you may know, uh, got out of his shower, stepped on an electrical, uh, um, electrical socket to a electric fan was executed, died. I mean, 
So in his last lecture on prayer, he says, let me read this to you because it points so much to what we've been talking about. Last night we were talking about service. Who do we serve? Do we serve self or self? Or self and self? Small S or big S or both? Or neither? Who do we serve? So Thomas Burton says, we realize that something has to give meaning to our lives. Something has to, to give permanent, substantial meaning to our life and that something cannot be merely our own. Cannot be merely our own. There's something, if it's all about me, after a while when we practice, you know there's a hollowness about that. There's something missing. And this is the sentence that struck me so profoundly. He says, we are a living incompleteness. A living incompleteness. That we're living a life that's incomplete. And this then goes back to what I was mentioned a moment ago. This ner this urge, this nudge, that, that thing that keeps coming. That we use the discipline of our practice to get closer and closer to this. I, I heard something else here recently too that, I, that struck me <laughs> along the same vein. This person said... I will not die living an unhappy life. I will not die living an unhappy life. And that's just like, you know, one of those bolts out of the, out of the sky. And I've changed the words around a little bit. I've changed, I will not die an ordinary life, having lived an ordinary life. I will not die living an incomplete life. And I think so much of what this practice is, is to complete this life. To what? What does what does um, Wayne In say in the Platform Sutra? What does he say? Oh, Michael, he says he says, <laughs> "All we have is our Buddha nature. All we have. This is our core of who we are. Is our Buddha nature. The discipline. What does it take to reveal my Buddha nature to myself? And of course, the big laugh is we're already realized. We just forgot it." We just have to wake up to what's already there. We just have to what? Let go, let go, let go. Every breath, as we said before, is an opportunity to let go. If we let go of everything at the end of the breath, we let go of everything. Everything is there for us. Everything. So when I hear discipline, these are some of the thoughts that come to my mind about that. That this, this kind of unsettledness that I have within me urges me to practice. I know, I know I'm, I'm hanging on. What's preventing me from, from seeing this? And, and this is a wonderful story that Christmas Humphreys wrote in, in his book. It says, I'll read this. It says, a man is in a room with two doors. He piles the furniture against one door and falls asleep. Later. He awakes and complains that he has no choice of exit, for there's really only one door available. Of course, the answer is, remove the furniture from the door. Yeah? And this is what happens to us. We've got furniture piled up against our door, and we don't realize it. And so piece by piece by piece, through the practice of discipline, we can remove the furniture from the door. Being careful, like, like when we have garage sales, or yard sales. You know what happens? Uh, everybody takes everything out of the house and put it on the lawn. And if you watch, in about an hour or so, 
people would be coming out of the house to get stuff and take it back into the house. You know, <laughs> that's really personal. I'm not really ready yet to get rid of that. Yeah. The furniture that we pile up. Yeah. And of course, for, within the context of discipline, there's, there's something marvelous about getting older. It does have its benefits, believe it or not. <laughs> you know what one of those benefits is? You can feel it coming. This human life is coming to an end. This receptacle that Michael is walking around in, this bag of skin, is disintegrating. It's failing. All the subsystems, sooner or later, one of them will fail, and that will be that. And that will be that. Now, here's something. Consider this. Anybody here younger than 26 and a half? No. Really? 23. 23, oh my. Okay, well, this doesn't apply to you. <laughs> so, the, the maximum age, the age of which the human body is at, this is an average, of course, everything's an average, is 26 and a half years. That's when it's at its greatest vitality, had its greatest strength, and so on and so forth, greatest flexibility. You know what that means, of course, then everything after that is a glide path going down, right? You know, it's all headed downward from then on. And what's wonderful about that, that idea is I get to manage how steep that glide path is. Yeah, I get to manage that. Food I eat, relationships, my practice, the discipline I take and all of that, I get to manage that glide path. The choice between McDonald's cheeseburger and an organic salad with fruits and nuts, which, which has the greatest essence to it, which will sustain this life longer, maybe a day. A day of one more practice that maybe then, that day, you know, the door will open because I've removed all the furniture. So you still have time. Okay. <laughs> you still have time. Yeah. So there's, there's something really magnificent about getting old because it's coming. And the discipline gets a lot easier. It gets a lot easier. Because this body, this precious vehicle that we have, this receptacle that houses the spirit, if you will, is going to end. So I want to what? I want to get as much done as I can in this and hopefully get the whole thing done. That I don't want, as we talked about last night, when I do an act, karma, no result. I create no karma in what I do. There's the discipline. How do I do that? How do I do that? And of course, we have this most magnificent practice of Zazen. I always, always think of it as Sashin. You know, Sashin has this top of the hill feeling to it. You know what I'm saying? You know, day one, day two, day three. This is day three. And tomorrow is what? It's over the top. We're going down. The end is in sight, you know? And things start to really change. You know, legs are now a little bit adjusted. Hips are opened up a little bit. We're used to the schedule. You know, sitting gets more and more deep. These, this is the fruit in my world. This is the fruit the next three and a half days. So I'm gonna lean on it, you know, bring everything, all that I can to this practice, all the discipline I know how in every moment. Yeah. So again, getting a little bit older, you know that, <laughs> that light in the end of the tunnel? It's not a train. <laughs> it's not a train. It's coming. And that's what makes it so precious. When we realize 
how precious a human life is and how blessed we are to have this practice changes for me, discipline changes for me. A lot. So those are some of my thoughts about discipline and practice, Senji. I call him Senji because I've known him as Senji. I, you know, I know there's all these other rules. I don't care. I'm calling him Senji. Mm-hmm. I am. Coben uh, always said the essential problem in our lives is identity. So the minute uh, you think you're your name, you've already lost. So you call me uh, Boogaboo as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's all the same to me. Uh, thank you. That was wonderful. If you don't mind, could we just take five minutes and absorb what he had to say before I start? Because it was something I'd like to do. I came at this subject from a completely different point of view. I, <laughs> uh, discipline is is one of the is the second of the six paramitas. Generosity is the first. Discipline is the second, and uh, often discipline is translated as uh, the discipline of following the precepts. So that's what I wanted to talk about. It's these behavioral signposts that give us a fundamental organization to our lives. It, it, what makes a Buddhist a Buddhist are the precepts. Uh, there's really only one ceremony that we have in Soto. Uh, giving precepts. Uh, when you die, you get the precepts. When you're born, you get the precepts. When you're ordained, you get the precepts. When you get married, it's all about precepts. Mm. Hindus, for example, Brahmins, follow the discipline of diet very, very strictly. And that is a fundamental organization for their lives. Uh, Jains are even more strict. They're vegan, where Brahmins uh, eat, eat uh, milk, but 
the Jains say that milk was intended for the calf and we shouldn't steal it from the cow. So because of this ethical orientation not to harm, they're vegan. And the Brahmin is vegetarian. So if all beings are sacred, we can't kill them. And we can make uh, lines that make that gray in a lot of ways. But ultimately, if you follow the precept of don't kill, you don't kill. And you don't participate in something getting killed. You may never have seen the animal that you're eating or witnessed its, its, its death or watched its packaging, but by buying it, you're participating in it. And I've heard a lot of people argue otherwise, but I don't see how you can do that. You are participating in that. So the first precept, uh, let's review the precepts to start with, because I think it's, uh, it's always helpful to do that. You have the three positive precepts. Uh, what are they, guilt? Be nice. Be nice. Don't be mean. <laughs> and make everyone feel good. Basically. Uh, so to... Uh, uh, there's a funny story about this. Of, uh, I, uh, a super sage in China, I don't remember his name, who lived in the very, very distant mountains. Uh, and no one could find him. And uh, there was a practitioner who reached the highest levels of all of the schools and felt like he was the, uh, could beat anybody in Dharma combat and was the wisest of all, all the field of Buddhists. And, so he wanted to go see this man who had this huge reputation. And he trekked up into the mountains and eventually found this great master and he prostrated himself at the, the master's feet. And he said, please teach me what I don't know. And uh, the master says, well, be nice. <laughs> and do good. Refrain from doing bad things and confer abundant benefit on all beings. Just do what you can. Whenever you, you see a soda pop can on the road, you pick it up. You see a wounded bird, you try to nurse it back down. You just do what you can to help everything out in a positive way. You see the Zendo is dirty, you clean it up. You know, uh, that's very, very simple. And uh, the man says, I've come all this way to hear this that I've, I've heard a thousand times. He says, yes, I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times. How much have you practiced? <laughs> and that's what these precepts really are. They're a way of examining our intentions before we get into doing something. And looking at them in terms of our actual reality, what we can do, can do. In fact, the first precept not to kill, uh, Corbin would say, is impossible to uh, follow every time you take a breath. You're killing, 
gazillions of microbes that are going and transforming in your lungs into something else, and then that's changing into something else. So every moment of every day, there's a huge amount of death going on and, re and birth going on as well. But, uh, so you, you can't not participate in, in the process of dying, but you can cut down minimize and that's really what all of these precepts are about they're not they're not made by God who made the rules and you follow them or you won't go to heaven these were made by people made by Buddha and his Sangha to find a peaceful way that people could exist together and in so doing provide for the enlightenment the realization of everybody else so that your behavior doesn't get in the way of somebody else's practice. And your practice encourages somebody else's behavior. So these things are open to interpretation. And uh, in fact, Buddha had hundreds of these rules that have been simplified for us to what we call the 10 negative precepts. Do we all know them? Not to kill, not to take what's uh, not offered to you, uh, not to uh, misuse sex. We won't go into the details of all these at the moment, but we can later. Uh, fourth is uh, no deceptive speech. And all of these precepts go both ways, out and in. So don't lie to anybody and don't lie to yourself. Don't go on some kind of a uh, cause that uh, you think is right, that uh, is a complete illusion, and you bring other people into that illusion, like uh, so many preachers do, for example. This is what we call speaking delusion, spreading delusion. And a uh, fifth one is not to uh, spread the wine of delusion or no, no narcotics, no, uh, no derangement of the mind, not to use anything that deranges the mind, uh, which could be a getting involved in a political movement, for example. It, it could be eating a, a certain thing that uh, causes you to think a certain way, be depressed breaking out in hives all the time. Um, the sixth one is, uh, uh, you remember the sixth one? Hunger? No. I don't have any. Not to dwell on past mistakes? That's Coben's, not to dwell on past mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, often it's, it's called not to find the faults of others, which is also not to f look at, to find your own faults. It's good to be aware of other people's faults and your own faults. So not to blame, not to carry this forward is the real key. It's good to see what you've done wrong, but to beat yourself up for it and not being able to move forward is, is the problem. So I think Coben's interpretation is actually a very good one. No praise or blame is, is how he puts it. Or no, no, no dwelling on past mistakes, no praise or blame is the next one. So not to puff yourself up and say, boy, I, I've got this 
Buddhist understanding down cold. <laughs> you know, I can argue with anybody. That's praising yourself or blaming yourself. I, I just can't understand what's going on. I'd, I'm such a failure. Uh, these are useless uh, ways of going. Number eight is, is not to be covetous or stingy with anything. The teachings, particularly, if, if someone's suffering and, and they can benefit by, by hearing how they're making their own suffering and you can bring them out of their suffering, that's being generous with the teachings. Being generous with money, being generous with uh, objects, uh, things that really are of benefit arise spontaneously. That's eight. Uh, nine is not giving rise to anger. As Coben used to say, it's, it's not about not being angry, because if you bottle up anger, it's just as bad as getting angry. It's to cut the root itself of anger. Cut the root of anger. And then the last one is not to disparage the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, not to speak ill of, of them or think poorly of, not to find fault with, with that. Um, so briefly, that's what it is. They're all kind of covered by the first one, not to kill. Um, because not to kill is not to do harm, essentially, is what we're talking about. You can do harm with your body, you can do harm with your speech, and you can do harm with your mind. And the precepts cover all of those. Now, the reason this is called discipline is, is uh, it gives you a way of answering questions that crop up in your life about what you're intending to do. Like, what sort of diet should I follow? And uh, maybe you live in a household of 10 people who are meat eaters and you want to do no harm and refrain from eating meat. That may mean that you isolate yourself from your companions and separate yourself from them in a way that, that uh, maybe you have a great deal to benefit from one another in every way but this, and by separating yourself from them by your discipline, you may be missing a bigger calling, a bigger question going on. But ultimately, you have to answer these questions yourself. And if you follow all of these precepts, you'll be more of a Buddhist than someone who practices meditating all day long his whole life. Probably. My daughter does this. That's all she follows is these precepts. But everything she does in life, she first confronts was, does this match what I want to do, how I want to be? For instance, not to do harm, if you hear, uh, if you make yourself uh, very well known or accomplished in something, you might make a, a big deal out of yourself. This to me, 
creates an arm. It's uh, it's like you make too big a footprint. You have too big of a house, more than you need. You take if you just minimize all the harm you do, minimize all the bad things you do. It's a lot easier than trying to be perfect. So it's refusal that we're talking about. So uh, you can say, oh no, I, I'll eat the rest of this, but I'm not gonna have the meat. I'll refuse that part of it. Or uh, they all say, oh, let's go play a trick on so and so and steal his car. Well, I refuse to do that. I don't. No one's. He hasn't asked us to do that. We shouldn't do that. Uh, to me, when you minimize everything, you live a very quiet life. You don't talk a lot. You don't try to uh, be too known, so that uh, you have time for meditation, reflection. This practice we're talking about doing is very, very difficult. It takes, it takes a lot of commitment and it, we're easily distracted. Distracted by other people, by their, their delusions and their entertainments. And, and we get pulled into that quite easily. So a way of avoiding that is just be the person at the party that no one remembers was there. Hmm. You know, that kind of person. Or, uh, cause less harm. If you, uh, instead of worrying about what you eat, worry about the quantity that you eat. Reduce the size of everything. Reduce the amount you eat. Slow down your breathing. So you're not using up so much air. Yeah, just uh, reduce, reduce, reduce. Refusal. This ties in with our discussion of karma. Because when we are constantly examining these precepts and refusing things that are uh, in violation in any way in our mind and our heart of these precepts, we clarify bad karma. Even if we've done it in the past, we've stopped doing it. I've harmed a lot of people in my life, but I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to be vegetarian, for example, and that's one of the practices I'll follow. And that's a discipline to be vegetarian. That means I'm always vegetarian. There's no exception to that rule. If that's the discipline I want to follow, that's why these precepts are called discipline, because they are part of your, your internal map through what we call the matrix of duality into non-duality. Because as long as you've got, if you've created a lot of harm, you're going to have a lot of ghosts haunting you the form of thoughts that, that come up, uh, guilt or uh, sadness that comes up over what you've done, or uh, worry about the result of what you've done because it's harmed somebody and what if that person catches you or something like that. All these interrupt our tranquil mind. So there's no possibility of jumping 
of liberation, of real liberation from karma itself without very strict discipline of the precepts. And so the precepts are passed on from teacher to student and from that person to the next person and on. And they've been passed on like this since Shakyamuni Buddha to, to us today. And on Monday, we will have the ordination of Brother Hakuho. And this is an opportunity for us all to retake our precepts, because this is something very central to what we do, is taking precepts. So internally, as, as he takes precepts, we all can, if you feel like, take your own vows of precepts. It's a subject that's, uh, it seems quite difficult for uh, Christians to understand. They think of vow, like I do a lot, I've done weddings, and I ask people to uh, come up with their own precepts because it's a good opportunity for the husband and the wife to discover the roadmap of what they share together that they both agree upon. We don't want to harm other people. We don't want to cause harm in our life. We agree on that. So that'll be one of our precepts. But so many people, they want to take vows, uh, like uh, uh, every day will be magical. I vow that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this kind of thing, of, of, uh, where you can't uh, work with, with the situation at all. A precept is something that works with your life. It's like a, uh, since we filter all the information that comes in, into us anyhow, it's giving us intentional filters, filters that his history has shown work. And if you follow these guiding guideposts, so turn left here, turn left, you know? Don't turn right just to see what happens. Uh, I mean, you might want to do that just to see if it kicks you in the face, which it probably will. <laughs> Steal something, you probably get caught and have bad consequences. And a lot of these precepts, too, also become very clear when you look at it from the point of view of, of uh, the absolute. There's, uh, from the point of view of absolute, there is no killing or stealing or any of it because nothing is really um, a choice. Everything is one big uh, evolutionary cosmic expansion, uh, emergence. It's like a huge emergence that we're all involved with is really what's going on. But in this we select how am I going to behave and all of that and that becomes our discipline. So this is a different take on discipline a little bit than what you were talking about. I think both of it was it's, uh, it's what's been so much fun talking with you is it 
expands uh, the scope of what we're talking about a lot. So if others have something to share, questions to ask, or if you have something to add that you'd like to add? And maybe something at the end I want to okay. share with everybody. Any questions or comments on this plan? Yes. So, one question for Hakuzan. So, why we have everything, why do we have to discipline? Because we live under the delusion of a separated self. So, discipline itself is a delusion. It's a what? So, di discipline itself is a delusion. It's a what? Delusion. Delusion. Yes. The discipline. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. yes. It's so that's the thing. My question is, I'm really be worried about, you know, Zen is always also, in order to absolute, we have to go over this dualistic view, hmm. which is, Judeo Christianity is, you know, dualistic, but it's dualistic, it's good and bad. But for us, dualistic, possibly, night and day, but we love both the difference of the dualism to go up to absolute level. So my point is, so again, why you have everything you have to do, discipline, is one question I have. Because level of discipline you talk about is very it's important, you know, this is a Theravada kind of more area, but I hope, I, I'd like to hear about why you're so worried about not the discipline I'm yourself. About it. You know what I mean? That's, I don't know, you are not, but I felt that kind of energy mm. from you. So, I, that's interesting. Hmm. I didn't get that image. I didn't either. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, I, I look at it, uh, another way of looking at this, in my view, is that I have a discriminating mind that deals in subject and object. And that discriminating mind creates suffering. How do I get out of suffering? I use my intellect to manage the, the, the deep understanding of that. And the deeper my understanding goes, the more mature my mind becomes, and eventually what? The door opens to the universal mind. There's, I don't think there's a shortcut. Of? Of getting from here to there, from the relatively yeah. absolute, without discipline. Because yeah. we are okay, conditioned why, beings. Yeah, so why we have to uh, avoid the suffering? Well, you don't have to avoid it at all. Right. You can suffer if you want That's to. Enjoy this is an effort. You're gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you enjoy suffering, then you, so again, you. going back, do we have to do something? Again, in the very beginning, I said that if you buy suffering, if you think that's a cause and you're uncomfortable with that, you start to find a solution for it. I think that though there are other people where suffering isn't necessarily the prime motive. What it is, is this urging. The Buddha nature yearns to be experienced. And that is a completely different yeah, I way think, of practice. Yeah, another way of saying that, I think, if I can paraphrase you, is that there's a 
yearning or an urge that comes as part of your like your DNA, the way you're born, mm -hmm. and this is what leads to discipline as a way of training, training yourself away from delusion yeah. and uh, negative practices that cause harm to yourself and others. Yeah. Is that yeah? Close yeah. So so discipline is a natural arising. Mm -hmm. from this urge. It's not something that uh, requires uh, an authoritarian figure to beat you up if you don't do it. Uh, it's uh, yeah. natural. Yeah, even with the authority, you know, as you know, if we say, if we are tomato, be the best tomato. But I'm worried about trying to discipline to be a melon. Even you are tomato, it creates unnecessary suffering because you're a tomato and you try to discipline to be a melon that's I don't know I'm just still I still didn't confuse them about you know if I discipline if I discipline discipline of being myself to not try to do something that's a discipline or what is yourself can you describe it Nothing. I don't know. This is it. Heart beating in this lifetime. I see it. So that's all you are, is heart beating? I don't know who I am. Who are you? Well, you said you wanted to be yourself. What is that? Just I mean, be a woman. Are you a tomato? I don't know. Tomato, good shit, everything I am. You look more like a melon to me. <laughs> really? <laughs> no. That's a tough. <laughs> In light of the uh, tomato and melon metaphor, I think you could say that um, ignorance is what causes us to try to be the melon when we're actually the tomato. And discipline is is reigning in that desire to be the melon when we are the tomato. And so discipline is not trying to be something we're not, but it's trying to bring ourselves back to just being who we are. So I think in that context, it's non-problematic. I think you could say that in the context of the absolute, discipline or not discipline is is a moot question because there's, there's no difference really. But um, in the context of relative truth, I think if you sort of presuppose ignorance as the cause of whatever problems you're having. Um, because ignorance is a relative phenomenon, it, it needs to be remedied by, or, or can be remedied by relative means, because relativity is this matrix of interconnected cause and effect. And so because ignorance exists in that matrix, it can be, you know, attacked or, you know, dismantled by other relative phenomena, which in this case could be discipline. So? Yeah, it's almost the same. It's as though you're, you're taking the point of view of a sudden enlightenment. And he's describing gradual enlightenment. Mm. It's interesting um, to expand a bit further on kind of this wrestling with the 
identity of relative and absolute. I was actually just thinking completely off in another direction is uh, the discipline of chaos magic. So that is an actual discipline that's that's pretty elaborate and complex. And one of the one of the first things you do when you really take on that path seriously is you actually have to develop your own system of ceremony and ritual and magic, including precepts, things like that. And it has to work. It has to be demonstrable. And so it's interesting because um, it seems like there's a lot of discussion about like absolute, but I'm actually seeing an, an interplay between two di dynamics, which is a dichotomy, which is dualistic, which is that we seem to have at our base this fundamental nature of chaos, essentially. The, the, and by chaos, I mean uh, potentiality, which I believe was actually mentioned in the past previous two talks, is potential. So there's potential. And there's also a categorical imperative of mind to want to take that potential and turn it into actual. I mean, a, a literal example is right now I'm speaking to everyone in this room in a series of phonemes, you know, which are a little more than grunts. I'm actually grunting at everyone right now. <laughs> However, we have developed the ability to take those grunts and contextualize them into something more complex in order to derive meaning and be able to communicate meaning. So it's interesting, it's almost paradoxical. It is paradoxical that in order to achieve no thingness, we have to have thingness in order to contextualize it against itself. And by doing that, you never get there either, because you're you're still in the matrix of duality. Mm -hmm. And even when you're talking about relative and absolute, we're talking in the matrix of duality. Right. So all we can do is kind of point towards something we can't describe. The jumps into real liberation all of this contextualization beyond there are no eyes, no ears, no nose, no mouth, <laughs> into uh, something that puts us into a uh, frame of reference that's even bigger than space itself. But space is the closest metaphor we have for what it is, without beginning, without end. So we use words that have opposites and are part of this matrix to, to lead, lead us into something else. It's also my belief with discipline that uh, you need training to change habits. You, you've grown up uh, trained by, in most cases, by ignorant people who are ignorant of the true nature of reality in a culture that's ignorant of the true nature of reality. And uh, that makes it rather difficult. Um, 
so you you have to uh, see things for what they really are, and uh, it takes discipline. It takes discipline of the body. If if you want your body to function in an optimal way, like to be the best tomato, if you want to be your best body, you'll keep it flexible. Flexibility is probably the biggest key to to health of the body. You'll keep the muscle tissue in, in shape. You'll keep your heart, all the organs functioning best you can with what you're eating, what your habits are. And that might require discipline of retraining, uh, retraining how you eat, retraining how you exercise. You may be uh, exercising four hours a day, but exercising incorrectly in a way that's causing you a lot of harm. And in order to get out of those patterns requires the discipline of breaking bad habits. We're full of bad habits. Full of bad habits. It takes discipline. Constant discipline. That's why we sit up straight. When we sit up straight, we get out of the habit of, I was at the computer all day long like this, or uh, I was pulling weeds, you know, and I hurt my back, and you know, this aches. So we sit up straight and we get out of those habitual patterns that have caused our muscle to form in a way that twists our bones and causes this pain. And so we need discipline to unwind by practicing movements of the body, movements of the mind that, that unwind those things. We have habits of speech where uh, we may be grew up with this, uh, saying something that other people find off-putting. And we don't know that, you know, and yet we're getting all this bad feedback, and so it takes discipline to recognize that the way you're saying something is off-putting, and that you, there's other ways to say it that gets you a different result, and that different result creates harmony in your environment instead of uh, upset and aggression from other people. <coughs> Did you have, want to say something? Or were you just stretching? Just okay. stretching. Just stretching. Mm -hmm. Then why don't you say something? Something. <laughs> <laughs> well, say? Uh, something. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yes. Um, an aspect of implementing, I was thinking about an aspect of implementing discipline. I've been watching these YouTube videos uh, done by former Navy SEALs who put on training programs for mental toughness and discipline, this kind of a thing. Um, and there's a lot that's relevant to this, like how do you actually um, invoke discipline, how do you execute it, you know, carry it out. One thing I wanted to mention that's been helpful to me in not only long runs, but um, in uh, unexpectedly long sits like two days ago, where, um, I, so uh, it, it's, that it's a kind of a truism I, I, get, I gather among SEALs, that if you feel like that's all you can do, it could be sitting or it could be running or working, it, get to that point, you're really, you've only expended 40%. It's a 40% rule. And, and they just keep that in mind that, okay, I feel like I can't go on, so I know I've got another 60%. Just mm -hmm. continue. There you go. Yeah. That's a good one. 
reminds me of the Army Ranger Training Regiment. They have a section where you have to climb a rope, and it's after you've been running forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's funny because the actual point of it is not to climb the rope. It's to see how hard you'll try to climb the rope. <laughs> Um, yeah, my, my supervisor, when I worked clinical uh, with veterans, was a 75th Army Ranger, and he said that the way he passed was not because he could climb the rope, but because he literally put the rope in his mouth, and he was holding himself up from the ground up with his mouth, and that's what passed him. It's like you're okay, sir, <laughs> So it's almost like... Discipline also denotes having a detachment from the result and being more process-oriented. Mm -hmm. And very closely related to discipline is uh, the, the third parameter, patience. Mm -hmm. Because it's very difficult to sustain uh, discipline without patience. And that's one thing that uh, sitting definitely helps to train us in is patience. Oh, my knees hurt. Oh, I'm here 40 minutes. It's only been five that's gone by. <laughs> How do I relate with that? I have the patience to endure this. Uh, How come I have a question? Hmm. Your statement of 40%, does that mean we can look forward to a three or three and a half hour set? Because <laughs> we've only used 40% in an hour and 40 minutes? A lot of people have expressed interest in it. And that. That's good. A lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to mention about discipline you taught teachers. Also, again, like you said, discipline to accept the paradox. Mm. You know, mm. it's like, for example, Precept, you know, lots of people talking, talk, talk. But I usually having this word in Zen, Furiyomonji, Kyoge Betsden. That's how I go through these crazy teachers, blah, 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 you know. Furiyomonji is, in Zen we said, nothing stands in the words. It's a paradox. Mm -hmm. Precept important, of course, but nothing important at the same time. At the same time. Yeah. So if I lose that kind of perspective, it's get stuck, mm -hmm. becoming very dogmatic. You should do this, good, bad, good, bad. Mm. Bad feeling, good feeling. That's unnecessary suffering at the same time. That, that's, that gives rise to the uh, motto of Hakubai Temple, the don't know school. What is this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know anything. Yeah, discipline. Uh, an interesting one, uh, um, uh, young landscape architect I trained, um, I had dinner with him the other night, and uh, he studied architecture in uh, Taiwan. And he said the, the last uh, day of the school before you were either passed on to the next level or not was eight hours 
straight, and uh, the, the, you get one problem, and the problem they had it was uh, each person got a small piece of a sponge, and you had to draw that as many ways as you could uh, all day long. <laughs> and most people quit after four or five, six hours, but if you didn't continue to do this for eight hours, you didn't pass on to the next, they didn't tell you about that. But it shows patience and rigor in you know, what you're doing. So we, it's something that we certainly don't teach young people in our educational system, uh, patience, rigor, and discipline. It's um, too bad. But here we learn it, discipline. Part of discipline here too, it's, which is really uh, important, is uh, it's, we're a group. So if you get up in the morning on time, it encourages everybody to get up and it makes it easy for everybody to get up. People say, oh, training in monastery must be so difficult. But it's not so difficult if you just follow the discipline. You know, you don't have to think about anything. It's time to get up, and if everybody gets up, you just get up. You don't think about it. If it's time to eat, you eat. If there's no food, there's no food. Do the next thing. Um, so our discipline is a group which makes sometimes a little more difficult when you go away from the group, because there's a lot of support in this group. Way, the quietness people are sitting with is contagious, and that helps everybody in their practice in, in a big way. And so our discipline inspires discipline, it creates discipline. Remember that when you're on your own, the strength of this encouragement. That's Sangha. That's why Sangha is such a holy subject, is we depend upon each other's interrelationship in the jobs we do. When Ekai leads the chanting, Gio rings the bell, and Kuru is beating the drum. And it's an interchange of, of people, and then we change roles, and we see how interrelated this is, and that my discipline becomes everybody's discipline, or my discouragement, my depression can contaminate the rest of us. So the precepts are uh, really transparent in, in the Sashin world. We see the result of our behavior immediately on other people. Rinpoche said there was, that uh, his teaching is uh, that uh, the, the six perfections are Mahayana. So it begins with giving, because the Mahayana, which moves uh, where the, the so-called 
aspiration is for enlightenment, where in the Theravada it's for nirvana, then giving is the most important part of it because it, it, what happens is if you had tried to reach nirvana, you still have the, the person who's reaching nirvana, you still have the watcher going on and the way Mahayana really addresses that is give yourself up give it all away all the time give so whatever your situation is we call it letting go with breath just let it go give give it to the universe take your obsessions give them to the Buddha take refuge give it away give constantly giving discipline he said discipline comes second because it's the discipline of giving. Giving is uh, a, a, uh, an assault to the ego. So it takes discipline to do that. Your first instinct is, oh, I don't want to give that guy a quarter. <laughs> I could, I'd rather have a, a, a candy or ice cream. Uh, so that you exert the discipline of giving your quarter when there's a question that arises, the discipline arises to be generous, even though it's contrary to your deepest <laughs> instincts and greatest desires to do. Uh, patience, uh, we sort of did that in relationship to discipline, uh, because uh, you screw up with discipline all the time. And uh, discipline isn't a, a linear situation. You apply discipline and then you fail many, many times. <laughs> and it takes patience to see what the merit of all of this is, what the real meaning in life is, what you're doing. And that patience is what informs your discipline and that informs your giving. And then uh, exertion is the next one which is what animates the patience in a sense. You have to apply yourself. You actually have to give yourself the nudge. Uh, it's not an exertion like uh, I'm going to lose 80 pounds kind of an exertion. It's the exertion to am I withholding? Don't withhold. I exert myself. I exert that discipline not to withhold anything. Meditation is the next, and uh, the order also is circular, so it, there really isn't a beginning that leads anywhere. It goes back to the beginning. But meditation gives you the stability of mind for the concentration, which is the last of the paramitas. Like what we practice, we, we let go, we let go, we let go, we let go, and let go of all those thoughts that are destabilizing our sitting. We let go of all the history that that uh, has has brought misfortune to us and our family or whatever. And we let go of all that. That that gives us the capacity to focus. Then we we have the mind that can go like a laser beam into something and really examine it and see the truth of it. If you try to concentrate with a chaotic and busy mind, 
it, it's uh, strenuous to concentrate. When you concentrate with a mind that's clear and full of breath, it's it's uh, it takes energy, but it's it's not uh, it's exhilarating. It's not exhausting. It gives you something back. So that's and then that something makes you want to do more giving because that's what got you in this process to start with. And I haven't heard that formulated that way except by Trungpa Rinpoche. So I couldn't say whether other people think there's any significance in the order or not. Do you know? Anybody know? Trungpa used to say, people would say, how much should we give? And he said, well, you have to at least give until it hurts. <laughs> because otherwise you haven't done anything. You're just building yourself up, you know. Uh, oh, I gave so much money to, to this cause. Did it hurt? You know, yeah, I got millions of dollars, so I gave him 50 bucks. That, was, <laughs> that didn't hurt. But then I gave 25 million. Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> After taxes. <laughs> that hurts. That's what you want to do. And there's a lot of sense to that, because unless it hurts a little bit, you don't have to hurt yourself where you're stupid, but you have to jab yourself a little bit. What do you think about vegetarianism vis-a-vis -vis veganism in light of the precepts? Well, as, as a monk, I, I found vegetarianism to be counterproductive uh, because the uh, for, to communicate with people, you have to establish some kind of rapport with them. And uh, when you make yourself very, very different from them, it's difficult to establish that kind of rapport. So if propagating the Dharma is what your intention is, you could set an example by being a vegan or vegetarian, but you also might disqualify any ongoing conversation that might be of great help. In my case, for example, uh, I'm not a vegetarian because my wife uh, wouldn't survive as a vegetarian. She can't eat beans or lentils or legumes. Uh, gluten she can't eat. So, I mean, there's, there's little, and then everything else she doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, we have a choice. We could follow different diets, and then we wouldn't eat together. Uh, so, to make a harmonious and peaceful household where we continue to 
talk. I follow, I don't have any dietary restrictions physically. I could eat anything and I'm fine. I'm best off when I eat the simplest. But if I eat this exactly the same thing every day, I'm really happy. <laughs> but not her. Um, so that's, I look at it in a situational basis, but if I, if I uh, was not married to her, I'd be vegetarian. I feel better when I'm vegetarian, and it makes more sense to me to be vegetarian. You're reducing, I mean, if you eat legumes, for example, your, your footprint on this planet is infinitesimally smaller than a meat eater, because the, the, the beef, the steer has to eat all these legumes and, and all the hay that you could be eating and transform that into meat and, and the ultimate efficiency of that will be of our efficiency expert here is very low, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not a if you look at the survival of this number of people on the planet, it would make a huge difference if we were all vegetarian. Huge. But situationally, that isn't what's going on in my life right now. Next life, I'll be a vegetarian. I promise. But <laughs> 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 well, I think it's also, you know, it has Tenzo Kyoten. It's like a Tenzo's, Tenzo is cook, cookbook. <laughs> is essential, I mean, Michio Kushi made macrobiotic in this country based on Zen cookbook, which is basic concept is body and soils are not separated. So we concept, you know, we separate our body and soil. So we eat fruits from tropical island. But if you really accept, you know, body and soil are connected, you start growing your own food. Mm-hmm. in your backyard. Then eat seasonal. And if you when you eat meat, you you know, slaughter, slaughter animal and eat it. So yeah. that's good even then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only if you do it and give and some places that yeah. I mean Tibet if you didn't eat uh, yeah, drink yak milk and eat yaks, there's Yeah, that's local thing. All the the, the only thing yeah. is barley. Yeah, you know. Besides that, uh, some chili peppers now. Yeah. yeah, but here, poor soil, you know, cold climate. You should eat meat. That's <laughs> local seasonal <laughs> food, possibly. That's like cool. Native Americans are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you don't have to, it's a much smaller imprint on the planet. I mean, yeah, the macrobiotic, you have the brown rice which stores, so you can eat that in the winter, and vegetables can all be made into pickles. So that goes, you can eat your vegetables over the winter as well. And uh, then sesame, you know, there are ways of living a perfectly healthy life, uh, being vegetarian, unless you have a lot of allergies, which a lot of people seem to have these days. Though not so much to rice, I don't.
Mary, we haven't heard from you at all. Elena, hmm? we haven't heard from Elena either. Yes. I just want to give an example. I feel like I violated the first precept. Uh, when I was young, I was a very strict vegetarian and very disciplined. <laughs> and when, <clears throat> over time, um, it just didn't work as much anymore for my body, and I changed. But thinking back in hindsight, I rejected a lot of food that people prepared for me, or for us, with a lot of love and, uh, <laughs> and attention. And... Um, I refuse to eat my mother's cakes, and when I think back now, or when I did think back at some point, I felt like I, by eating a certain way, I tried to avoid to kill animals, but at the same time, I was killing in another way. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the paradox of the whole thing, always. If you look deeply at it, it's not as simple as it seems. And Mary, we haven't heard from you. I don't have much to say. <laughs> we always love to hear whatever it is. <laughs> you mentioned uh, Lexio Divina in the first night you spoke. So, um, I've been participating in a group once a week uh, doing Lexio Divina. And two things really jumped out at me during the year. One was be still, and the other one stay awake. And I feel that those are very, um, speak very loudly to me right now. And I've, I also find that uh, as I get older, simplifying my life is very important. The way I eat, the way I live, um, probably could be done sooner, but <laughs> I'm enjoying it now. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to hear your voice. She's so, she sits next to me, she's so quiet. Most of the time I don't know she's there. Oh, you uh, wanted to mention about uh, when she came in to sit and you were mm -hmm. sitting, didn't you? Yeah, do you want to do the protocol? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's, when I was in Zen Mountain, uh, they had a protocol there that I thought I might offer for your consideration. That is when, when uh, so Mary and I, um, I'm here, Mary's there, and Gil's on the other side. So the protocol is that, say I'm s seated there and Mary comes in, typically she'll, she has a, some things with her, and so she will put her things down. And then the protocol is once you put them down, you stand up and you bow to your cushion. And when you bow to your cushion, I bow with you, and if Gil's there, he bows also with you. It's a way of acknowledging our relationship with one another. And then, of course, then you turn by yourself and bow to the center. Yeah, it's just a, a wonderful practice. I mean, it really feels nice when that happens. So I just offered that for your consideration if you're interested in adding that to your practice. I'll say one more thing. <laughs> uh, tonight, 
I chose not to have supper and not to stay for the last uh, session before supper. And it was a difficult decision, but I felt like I just couldn't do another session. And I opted to do an hour of Jinshin Jitsu uh, instead, which really helped me. Um, but I still felt uncomfortable leaving to do that. I have to ask you this question, Mary. What flows did you do? I did the stomach flow. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stomach about digestion. No, I did it because that flow goes through the knees, and the knees were my problem. Yeah. My but, project. <laughs> yeah, but when I say digestion, it's just not necessarily food. It's digesting yes. everything, our life. Right. That's a very difficult uh, dilemma is uh, if everybody always is participating, it helps everybody to always participate. And when we break away from the group for even a period of sitting, it, it affects everybody as well. But at the same time, sometimes you have to take care of yourself. And uh, it's okay to go for a walk uh, during a sitting sit on the rock out here or uh, move more uh, that we uh, that's fine around here uh, but it should feel bad A good friend of mine is an uh, indigenous Lakota person at Pine Ridge Reservation. And I just recall a conversation we had where we were talking about discipline actually and how discipline is practicing in a space that's safe for a moment that's not safe so that you know how to act. And he was telling a story about, um, they have a, a large wild dog population there, it's a problem. And so, <laughs> the way they decided to solve it was they brought in a, a company of mercenaries, and they just went through town just killing dogs, right? And so, he came upon a puppy that was wounded, dying, and so he picked up the puppy, and he was like, literally the only thing I can do right now is just be with this being while it passes on. And while he was holding it, crying, um, 
these two individuals came up and started making fun of them. They said, you know, uh, oh, look at this guy, he's a wimp, he's crying, like there's nothing you can do for this puppy anyways, why are you doing this, you know? And he said his first thought was like, I want to punch this dude in the face as hard as I can. That was his first thought. But he's disciplined. And so instead, what he said was you can tell a lot about a person by how they treat those that can do nothing for them. And I thought that was really powerful because through discipline, through practice, through cultivating the ability to kind of be the meta observer to your own experience, he actually had a very beautiful teaching moment with that person instead of punching him in the face and participating in what that person seemed to be seeking, which was validation for their own violence against themselves, probably. I don't know, I felt compelled to, to share that. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Hakkabai Zen Center. Our Dharma Talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Hakkabai and how to give, please visit us on the web at hakkabai.org.